Welcome to Mercer's podcast series on the new shape of work. I'm Kate Bravery, Mercer's advisory and insight leader. And today I'm joined by Dr. Sion Bylock, a leading expert on the brain science behind human performance. Sion is also a celebrated author and currently serves as the president of Bernard College at Columbia University. And last year, she was appointed as the president-elect at Dartmouth College, where she is the first woman president in the history of the school. Congratulations, Sion. Wonderful to have you on the call today. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, you know, every year we uh, take a pause out of our normal podcast series um, to record some discussions specifically aimed at International Women's Day. And as a psychologist, I'm really excited to be chatting today. And the topic that we're going to be diving into is women's participation in the future of work. Joan, what got me really excited about having you on this uh, podcast today was your recent Fortune article. As someone who's also changed roles and countries a number of times, just your comments on embracing the positive impact of stress that we naturally feel when we step into a new role and, you know, fending off that threat response that we get when we have a lot of feedback in those new roles um, really stuck with me and I thought is a, a great topic to be having on the call today. I'm excited to talk about it. Well, as you know, the theme for International Women's Day is embracing equity. Uh, and the highlight there is the fact that gender equity doesn't need to be focused on organizations and societies, but it also needs to be embedded into the DNA of organizations and societies. So why don't we start with the topic of embracing equity? And I'll be curious to hear from your professional and personal standpoint, what does that mean for you? Yeah, I think of equity as really allowing everyone to achieve their full potential. Um, and it's not just about being at the table. It's about feeling like you belong at the table. Absolutely agree with you. And they are such different psychological states <laughs> um, in terms of, of, of how that plays out. And I know that you were part of the Mercer panel uh, discussing some of these topics at Davos earlier this year. And if I remember rightly, I think on that session, you deep dived into the women's confidence gap and some of the challenges that they have accessing their own capabilities and strengths. And this really intrigues me. And as part of my role at Mercer, I get to have a look at a lot of our data. And I always look at the differences between men and women. And one of the things that came out of our Global Talent Trends results last year was that women um, tend to not believe that the skills that they have today could be suitable for a role they might move in tomorrow. And as we're starting to see more skills-based organizations coming to being, um, there's some real challenges there in ensuring that the women, you know, aren't just in that chair, but actually feel they belong as part of the future of work. I would love to hear your thoughts around how we close that confidence gap and any risks that you see with that as we start to look at these new ways of working. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting statistic. And it goes along with a lot of research showing, for example, that women tend not to apply for jobs unless they have most of the qualifications where men will apply. And that women tend to think that if they got a middle mark in a class, they can't go on to the next class where a man will tend to think he can go on. And of course, these are averages, but um, it's really important because what it means, I think, for your data especially is that we're losing out on women who would potentially raise their hand, mm -hmm. right, um, to go on to that next role or be considered. And so to me, that suggests that now we have to think about the system 
that doesn't just require someone to raise their hand to go into a role, but a system of managers and talent um, recruiters that are actually going out and finding these people, right? So understanding there's this gap in confidence, and I'd be willing to argue that it's not based on a gap in ability, right? That's an important point here. Then it's really up to the organization, to the system to start changing how they're finding people. Otherwise, they're just missing human capital. It's interesting because these statistics have been around for a while, and yet this picture really hasn't changed. And I, I agree with you. It is about looking at the system. You mentioned there about recruiters having, you know, ensuring there's a bias in the way that they're hiring. But I also think technology is the answer and also sometimes the challenge. <laughs> um, you know, talent intelligence platforms that helps people to really understand the mirror to different skills that they have and talent marketplaces that can match people to that. I'm sure must be part of the solution. I'd be interested to hear if you have any thoughts with regard to um, technology and uh, and DNI, uh, friend or foe there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think certainly it's both. Like like everyone, I've been playing on Chat GPT, right? I want to understand it. Um, but I do think you know systems, whether it's technology or people, that are just expanding the search space is really great. And one thing we know from psychology is if you see people who are like you in a particular field, you feel like you belong, right? And so I would urge HR specialists and managers to be thinking about the folks in their organizations that haven't followed a traditional path that you might uh, associate with a particular role and putting them out as examples, right? It opens up the space for someone applying to think, hey, that could be me. And we talk about this phenomenon, like seeing is believing. There's a reason that when women have women professors in, um, in their classes, they feel like women can be more likely to lead. It's that um, exposure that is so important. Uh, and there's another great example of this with young kids. Young girls, it's not about seeing a scientist that's a woman and saying, I'm a scientist. It's about showing them that they're already doing science and whatever they do. Right. And that's one of the ways you get young girls into excited about science. They already are scientists. So I have an 11 year old and, you know, she'll ask me a question about why a bridge looks the way it does. And I'm like, you're doing science. She gets really annoyed. But I'm trying to show her that she is a scientist. I love that. I love that. And uh, well, you're trailblazing there, being the first uh, female president elect. So I think, you know, you're going to be that role model for other people. And I think it's wonderful that we put 10 minutes into this podcast and we and we'd already just mentioned chat GPT because I think everybody is having a look at it. And, um, you know, it is important to know where the data comes from because I think that also um, looks at what biases we have in some of those responses. And it's going to be fascinating to see how that's weaved into organizations. And I love, you, I love your comments there around we've got to be visible about the type of roles women can, can do in the future. I was hearing the other week about um, VR being used, um, particularly in Africa, to give uh, young children between 8 and 11 an immersive experience of what it might be to be a scientist in Germany. Um, and it has a much stronger impact on their confidence to go into STEM, cell, uh, STEM jobs in the future, as opposed to uh, just talking about those opportunities. Yeah. So I think that visual thing is really important, but we can also achieve it in, in new ways. Well, talking about new ways we can achieve things and being visible, of course, one of the other big topics that has been dominating the dialogue of the last couple of years has been hybrid working and remote working. And we still see a big disconnect between executives' views about 
how often we need to be in the workplace and how important presenteeism is to pay and promotion, and particularly women's thoughts around work-life integration. The data is mixed again. <laughs> On the one hand, um, women cited flexible working and working from home as part of driving some of their feelings that they might be at burnout this year, but they also said it's a big attraction for staying with an organization. I'd be interested to hear from from your experiences and perspective, um, what's your thinking about flexible work and the opportunity it affords for women, and what are some of the risks given some of the rescinding of flexible work policies that we're now seeing happening? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing the pandemic has taught us is that it's not a one-size-fits-all anymore, where it used to be the expectation was five days a week in the office. I think any employer is thinking about what that means, uh, three days a week versus even something less, more flexible. One of the things that I worry about, though, is especially young people and young women not recognizing the power of being in the office for those informal connections, for chats outside of the meeting room. And if we look at who has most of the division of labor at home, it's women. And if we're then saying, okay, you can decide when you come in the office, it's very clear who's going to have the flexibility to decide to come in the office. It's going to be men. And the end result is that we'll have an office full of men, which is not very, as we talked about before, it doesn't send a signal that women belong and we'll start perpetuating some of the inequalities that have already been there. And when people look for promotions, they're gonna look for the people that they talk to all the time. And so what I would really urge employees and managers to do is, is think systematically about what work looks like in a way we've never had to do before. Are there a few days a week where everyone's in the office where you would literally say to them, you can't do Zoom meetings. This is when you do your team meetings or other things. If you do have a remote working environment or more hybrid, how are managers making sure to connect with those people who are working more remote? Are there more informal meetings? It's We've never had to spend so much time thinking about what work looks like before. And in order to be successful as a company, developing a culture, being productive, it necessitates doing that work now. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I share your fears about the future of work. If we look at the trends and the preferences, um, we will have more men in the workplace, more men in senior positions making decisions, and and that doesn't bring the best of any team, um, which uh, is something to mitigate. But your your comments there about we have to be intentional, we actually have to do the work on this, I think is so true. And you're right, we, we're not used to it. We didn't have to think so deeply about that before. And I love your practical suggestions there around you know, what are the days that we're in the wig together? Is there contact days? Is there learning days? Do we learn together? together? And and when do we maybe turn off the Zoom? I think that's all going to be really important. Yeah, and I would first, I'd urge, man urge managers to get their teams together, to, to talk to them, hear from them what works well at home, what doesn't. Although we know that people's perception of how productive they are at home doesn't necessarily match their manager's perception. So that's important to know. But to talk to them about what it what would make them productive, why the manager thinks it's important to be in, um, and to really talk about the fact that this is going to be an iterative process. Like no one's getting it right right now. Like some companies said five days a week, then they scaled back, then they went another way. You know, I don't think we should look at that as getting it wrong. 
I think we should look at it as the scientific process. We are in an uncharted territory and you iterate to find the best solution. This is something that we talk about a lot at Dartmouth, actually, in terms of a process called design thinking. It's about iterating through to get to the best outcome. And it is, you know, it's not failing along the way. It's improving. I, I agree with you. And I think one of the most exciting things coming out of this period is the amount of experimentation and test and learns that are happening. Um, you know, for me, every HR person I work with is becoming a scientist, which I love. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd love to go on just to the final question today, which is, you know, a lot of the narrative around gender equity quite rightly focuses on gender gaps, whether it's pay equity gaps, pension equity gaps, health equity gaps. Um, and these have been really stubborn to close. Um, but when we, but I think we've got a broader dialogue to have and one that certainly involved men as part of the conversation. Uh, at Davos, as you know, we um, partnered with the World Economic Forum to launch Good Work. And one of the aspirations in that Good Work framework is to build workforces that reflect the operating markets within which a company operates. And that's a pretty high bar because you need to solve a lot of these equity issues at a societal, not just an organizational level. I wonder if you could share some practical suggestions of how we can build those sustainable people practices that might get us there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really the onus. One place I think this can really happen, and I think the onus is on companies, but also on institutions of education, is to think about partnerships. So education institutions, whether they're universities or high schools or in the U.S. community colleges, two-year colleges, have amazing workforces. And educational institutions, to a certain extent, had done some weeding out of who those workforces should be, right? And so where are the opportunities for companies to partner with educational institutions early to think about who's coming out and to interest these students in the kinds of jobs that um, they might not even have known about. I think oftentimes at um, selective universities, whether it's Barnard or Columbia or Dartmouth, students don't know the range of jobs out there. This is especially true, I would argue, for women and uh, women who've come from lower economic backgrounds. They don't have, they haven't had the exposure to all the things they could do. And so I think we miss an opportunity to educate early about what jobs are out there. This is about the nature of work. We don't know all the jobs are out there. A lot of them will change. But getting students early could be so important. And I will tell you that at Barnard, we have a program with Bridgewater, um, which is one of the world's largest hedge funds that actually has a fellowship program for students, women of color in their first and second year to just get exposed to what the financial industry is. And Bridgewater actually works with them to do research. Um, they get to research something in their field. And the whole goal is to diversify the financial industry. These are students who didn't even know what the financial industry was or what it actually entailed. And it's these kinds of programs that are going to be so important for expanding the human capital that's out there and who we can go and get. And if you just take the adage that ability is way more widespread than opportunity, that's the key. Our goal as organizations, higher education, public, private companies, is to go out and cast a wider net so there's more people that know about the paths going forward. 
I couldn't agree with you more. I think the financial services industry uh, has historically uh, not had the cultures that have enabled both genders to thrive as much. And wonderful that we get people thinking about inclusive finance from a much earlier age and also just having this exposure to um, diverse views and thoughts. Um, fantastic. I know that we are coming to the end of our time um, today. It's been really fascinating. A couple of things that resonated for me. Um, we need to make sure that we aren't just at the table, but we truly feel that we belong at the table. And that feels that both parties and men and women uh, need to speak up if that's not there. Um, we need to really think about uh, the role models that we have in our organizations and make sure that whether they're role models inside the organizations or like yourself outside the organization, they can aspire us and, and maybe our children as well. Um, I also loved your comments about we should really challenge ourselves around the benefits of being back in the office. Uh, if we just go with our natural instincts and preferences, we might lean back when we should be leaning in. Right? That's an important one to keep in our mind. Um, and we've got to keep the dialogue open between employees and employers to close that perception gap that you mentioned around productivity, because I think that is the niggly one um, that is causing um, some decisions that might not be all, you know, might not resonate with with all of the workforce. Um, if we want to aspire to some of those top roles, we need to have the right exposure along the way. Um, and that means ensuring we're open to non-traditional talent. And we do take a gender lens when we are looking at promotion and hiring opportunities. See, so, yeah, the things I picked up um, throughout our conversation today, um, just as we do close out, I would love to hear from you. Um, how are you making hybrid work for you? Earlier on the call, I heard your dog in the background now that you were hoping to be in a different location today. You seem to be balancing it all. I would love your your thoughts on what's working for you at the moment. So the secret, I think, for me and everyone is it's, you know, not working perfectly and that's okay. And sort of embracing the fact that this is messy and hard and uncomfortable. And I would argue that anyone who looks like they're doing really well probably is not doing as well as you think. So that's important to acknowledge. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm really with my team being intentional about when we're together for meetings um, and also being flexible about people's individual roles and needs. But I think we are in experiment mode. We're in iteration mode and giving all of ourselves a little break, being self-compassionate that it doesn't have to be perfect or feel great all the time right now is actually the thing that will lead us to feel better in the future. I love that. Uh, all throughout this call, I've heard you say, it's okay not to have it all buttoned down and messy equals learning, uh, which I really love. <laughs> Sian, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Listeners, thank you all for tuning in. If you're interested in matters relating to diversity, equity, or inclusion, or indeed other topics associated with transforming for the new shape of work, please visit the Mercer.com site and our interview series that is up there. Thank you all for joining. Wish you a great rest of the day. Bye-bye.